0: This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money. And yes, we are back on the weekend, no less, with another special mailbag edition. I know it's becoming routine, but you people tell us you like it. And frankly, we enjoy doing it. So here we are. Now, of course, as per usual, we're not here on a Sunday. We are pre-recording this and we are doing it on Zoom. So please forgive us as we have in the last couple of weeks. Any little audio glitches you may experience as we go through it. The voice you're hearing is me, Scott Phillips, and of course, with me as he is every week and every Sunday when we do one, Dr. Reba Mahati. How are you, Doc? Great, Captain. How are you? I, I'm excellent. I do love, even though home is a different thing these days, it's not, it, days off aren't quite what they once were, we can go out and do something. There is nothing better than a four-day weekend. You know why I love? I don't, it's not even the four days off, it's the fact that work weeks are shorter. I know it's the same thing, but a four-day work week just feels different, right?
1: Yeah, of, actually, you know, maybe there is some productivity arguments to be made that you know, increase the work day, work day by you know two hours, and you've got, uh, you know, you've got a four day work week. Yeah, and maybe people are more productive anyway. That's an, well, that's a good uh, what shall we say tangent.
0: I'm even reasonably sure you wouldn't even have to increase the work hours. You just keep the work load the same, and people will be more productive, so they get the extra day off. If our boss said do everything you're doing, and you can have Fridays off. And sometimes you have to work longer hours. But sometimes you just have to not take as many tangents and whatever else. But I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not entirely sure that we would lose all that much. I mean, look, if you're somebody who works on a production line, there's only so many widgets you can do it an hour, so That is real. But for those jobs that, that require some sort of, you know, computer or thinking work or something else, I'm not entirely sure a four-day work week, even without mandating extra hours per se, wouldn't be almost as much, if not as much done. And a much happier workforce.
1: i I agree let's start a petition for a four-day work week in australia
0: i'll put your name on that when we speak to the boss if he likes it i'll take the credit if not mate i'm sorry you're gonna get fired so you know it is what it is (laughs) all right let's move on we have a couple of questions we have got a lot of questions to get through let's get going motley fool money for more go to fool.com.au forward slash triple m all right first one from nick Nick says, hi, I've got a question for the Mailbag Podcast. Well, Nick, you've come to the right place because this is exactly what this is. He says, hey, guys, love the podcast. I'm 29 and I've been following Motley Fool for about a year now. As always, I despise the fact you're younger than me, Nick, because, A, you've got more life ahead of you and more compounding. Both wonderful things, so well done. I'm a subscriber to Shooting Stars, Share Advisor, and Extreme Opportunities. Thank you very much. I have to say, Nick, I... um, you give me an excuse to throw an out in a minute. So let's stay tuned. Uh, good deal. I'm starting to notice my portfolio is heavily weighted towards Infotech with it taking up roughly 50%. Healthcare sits around 20% and then the others. I have no blue chips with all companies being generally small and mid caps. He says, I do own three ETFs, but they make up a small percentage of my portfolio. What's your opinion on how I should be looking at diversification? And should I be looking to add other sectors and different size companies. I feel like I'm buying a lot of companies based on your recommendations, thank you, but now my portfolio is quite large but with relatively small amounts in each company. Do you think it's better to back in a smaller amount of solid companies who are relatively diverse or have a larger total amount of companies owned with small investment amounts in each and keep investing in new recommendations as they arise? I guess in short, I'm still working out my investment strategy and I'd like some guidance on how to set myself up With a long term plan rather than just winging it based on how much spare cash I have in the bank at the time of a recommendation. Thanks and full on, Nick. Nick, great question, mate. Thank you very much for, uh, well, firstly, joining our services. Thanks for listening to the podcast. And thirdly, thank you for asking the question. Let's go through it, docking a little bit of automate, lots of kind of proportions here. So, firstly, let's go to diversification. His his party says, look, I have 50% infotech, 20% healthcare, and then the others. He has no blue chips, with all the companies being generally small and mid, but he has a little bit in three ETFs. What do you think, mate? Is that sufficiently diversified? Does diversification matter? How should Nick be thinking about diversification in that sort of portfolio? And again, we say Nick, I will say, as we say most weeks, this is always only of a general advice. So we're using Nick's Nick's example to give some general advice to all of our listeners. As always, please take into account your personal circumstances and get personal advice if you think it's necessary. But that that was standing dog. A portfolio with 50% IT, 20% healthcare, 30% everything else, small and mid. What do you say?
1: Uh, so, I mean, you know, maybe the, the, the devil's in the detail. So, the reason I'm saying the devil's in the detail is, um, so uh, let's use as an example. Let's say that someone owns uh, shares in uh, Telstra, right? Then that would qualify as telecommunication, right?
0: Mm-hmm. Now... It's pretty straightforward.
1: Pretty straightforward. Now, <laughs> let's say somebody owns um, shares in A2 Milk, that would qualify as a consumer discretionary. Yes. Right. Now, there is... I mean, there's nothing... Excuse those noises. Uh, there's nothing that suggests that you should cover all of those sectors as, as number one, right? I mean, there's no... Rational reason that you need to have, you know, some exposure to telecom, and and some exposure to um, consumer discretionary, because I mean, one way to think about it is that you know, part of the expenditure a telecom company sees is consumer discretionary in nature, right? I mean, maybe right. they've got extra plans on. Uh, you know, 4G that they probably don't need, which can disappear just as much as spending on milk can disappear, right? So I think yeah. that that's number one. Number two is, um, and this is an interesting one, is you could say that, uh, I'll use an example, an easy to understand example. Let's say we have, so let's say Nick owns shares in uh, Google or Alphabet, right? Mm-hmm. Now, yes. well, that would broadly classify as uh, in, you know, uh, information technology, right, or technology. Seems great, yeah. But but is it, you know, one has to really think that what type, what parts of life does that company actually uh, touch, right? It touches everything from cloud computing, which is enterprise, you know, it's basically providing solutions to access you know, servers and, you know, computing resources and, you know, databases and things like that uh, Mm -hmm. to enterprises, which is, you know, uh, small and large businesses, Mm -hmm. to providing Android uh, to consumers, to providing Google search uh, to consumers and businesses and everyone um, and so on, right? Now, large Mm -hmm. parts of that business is advertising. Right, but it's advertising yeah. for small yeah. and large businesses, right? So is it really? I mean, you, know, you say it's information technology; it's really, you know, but it's actually advertising, right? <laughs> if yes. you think about yes. it, eighty yep. percent of the revenue is is uh, is advertising. Then you know, one could say, well, you know, I'm concentrated in advertising, but hey, it's distributed across the whole world, right? Mm-hmm. So I think you know, one of the problems with thinking about diversification strictly from um, you know these classifications that uh, you know S and P might have, or Morningstar might have, or anybody else has, where we are trying to bucket things into a certain category. Uh, one has to really think, be a little bit below the surface as to what mm-hmm. categories are you really touching. So that's number one. And then you want to be sort of diversified in that category. That's, that's number one. Number two, uh, like if I did a, you know, off the top of my head, I'm probably like 80% information technology. Using <laughs> right. sort of sort of that same, but I feel pretty diversified because uh, I've got companies that tackle different things in information technology that t- tackle different aspects of information technology. Then finally, it's easy to say that you're considered in information technology, but you know, here's the other fact: there's very few things today in in life, for both individuals and corporations, that don't don't touch informate information technology. Right? I mean. Mm. Some way or the other, you know, we're using a computer, we're using Zoom, right? You know, we're using internet. That's all information technology. We're using some applications. So information technology is almost like the bedrock of right. society in some ways. It's like the roads, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it's the stuff with which stuff gets done. So I don't, I don't feel, um, so you, you really need to think about what type of companies you own. I think that's the way I think about diversification. sort of thinking about specifically about, um, you know, whether it's tech or not tech. Then the I guess the related question is um, blue chip versus not, right? So, I mean, here's the thing with blue chip. Something may appear to be blue chip, but uh, when time comes, it actually is probably just, it's a fake blue chip. So, I, I, you know, it is good to have blue chip that, in my mind, a blue chip company is one that is likely to be less volatile share price-wise compared to other companies, it's going to be more stable. Therefore, you're going to, you know, you're going to sacrifice uh, upside, but in return for for sacrificing the upside, you are getting more of a stable return, steady return and so on, right? Um, So I don't think actually a lot of companies that people would generally think of as blue chip, are actually probably not blue chip because you are sacrificing the upside, but at, at the same time you're also getting the volatility, <laughs> so yeah. they're probably not blue chips you know so so, uh, so that's the thing right so i mean if and if you can't find enough of actually what I would classify as like true blue blue chips, then maybe it's not worth thinking about, right I mean maybe you should just accept the fact that you know you're okay with volatility so I, I mean that's the other part, so I mean you know, I would be careful about, about what what thinks is is blue chip mm-hmm. and and then I think. The last part is small percentage in the ETFs. Um, that's fine. I mean, you know, like, I mean, if you, own, if you own a large number of different companies and you already got diversification, then the ETFs either provide you access to parts of markets that you don't have access to yeah. or parts of sectors or industries that you don't have access to, which you want the ETF to do, or you are trying to play a trend or a theme. Like, for example, if you wanted to, have exposure, you believe that the emerging markets are gonna grow at a certain grade and they're probably as, as a group, they're gonna beat the ASX or, or the ASX all And therefore you wanna have some exposure to emerging markets, but you don't, you, you know, it's like a huge market, huge swath of things yeah. to do the research yeah. on. So maybe that's where you, you say, well, okay, fine. You know, I believe in this underlying economic trend uh, in a rising middle class and things like that. And therefore, I'm gonna play it using an ETF and, and that sounds like a reasonable uh, strategy. Uh, at the same time, you can also find companies that actually play in that trend. And, you know, there might be local companies, which actually are, you know, we talked about in on the Friday's podcast about, say, Bob's, for example, that's playing into mm-hmm. that trend or A2Mil. You know, you'd find other companies that, you know, are uh, in, are investing into those markets. So therefore, you mm-hmm. can get exposure there. So, I mean, those are sort of broadly how I think the, the last part, I'll quickly answer that part as well. And then throw it back to you in terms of how many companies is too much or how large one of the things it's i I said investing is really a journey because it's a journey because you have to figure out what worry really works for you because the the thing is i could say whatever i want to (laughs) but if it doesn't work for nick or whoever else then at the exactly at the wrong point in time they will be Mm -hmm. second guessing their decisions right so you need to make those decisions that you are absolutely comfortable with and you can live with Right? and that's a bit of a journey because you need to find whether it's good for you to own 50 companies or 100 companies or 30 companies like I mean you can get diversification with 15 right yeah. and, and yeah. you could own you know more um, if you wanted to so it's a bit of a journey one of the things I, I think that might be worth thinking about is once you've got say, say 20, 30 companies you've got and you've got diversification in your portfolio it's worthwhile thinking about conviction mm-hmm. how much conviction do you have in a certain idea um, that is sometimes a function of knowing the company well enough, doing some research in it, you know, seeing how the company has performed, what the past, you know, news news has been. For example, the earnings and so on, and then you know, maybe adding to your conviction um, mm-hmm. over time is, is a strategy that is useful. That what that does is it creates the opportunity for adding to existing companies at your hold. We do that in our services, for example, via Best Buy's Nows, right? So we, mm-hmm. we say that you know these are the companies that we have already recommended which we think are are interesting worthwhile right now for these reasons and, and that's sort of reinforcing that idea that you know when you have convictions on companies you can add to them at multiple points in time so that sort of you know it's it's not a clear cookie you know cutting mm-hmm. sort of a, a approach not a clear formula but yeah that's those are roughly what i would think be my approach just to do.
0: Mate, I, I think you've nailed I'm going to throw in a couple of thoughts just to add to yours. Um, I, think you, you're, I completely agree with almost all of it. Um, I think, look, in terms of diversification, I think, you know, the the, the tech, you, you're dead right about IT, Doc. I think this is the one where it's really, really important that people don't get too caught up in in, in industry classifications provided by either the, the financial media or the markets themselves. You want to think about the risks inherent with it. Diversification is not just different sectors, right? Um, as you say, mate, you, you know, you could have... I don't know, I guess, as you say, Google is probably more aligned to the sorts of risks that are likely to hurt consumer discretionary companies in the sense that if there's a recession, you know, um, premier investments sell fewer genes and Google will sell less advertising. That won't necessarily impact the demand for um, Cisco's databases. Right now it might, but but in terms of, you know, a database company and 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 a, you know, Google seem like the same kind of business, but the types of risks, the types of impacts they're going to feel... Types of volatility events they're going to suffer from, you've got to think about what's the underlying driver of that particular business. And you've, you've highlighted it nicely, Doc. The, in the future, almost all companies will be IT enabled, IT powered. And so really even information technology is not very useful, like, you know, part of me actually thinks you're better off breaking up IT. You know, Amazon is, I own Amazon, should be a consumer discretionary company. Apple should be a consumer discretionary company. Um, Google probably should be a consumer discretionary company. You go through the list and kind of try and divide them up. There are some things that are literally providing, you know, databases or networking equipment or chip makers. They are proper technology companies in that sense. Um, But software is so ubiquitous. Now you can't simply say it does software or it does computing stuff, therefore it's tech. uh, When really the business that it's in is only powered by tech, not actually tech itself. I think there's probably some value there. So Nick, I agree with Doc there. I would say to some degree, have a think about that. I like Doc's point about, you know, don't own everything just because they exist. Um, I, I, I've, <laughs> I've said many times, don't be like Noah. You know, you're not, you're not Noah. You don't need two of everything. Uh, just because there's a sector out there, two oil stocks, two resources stocks, you don't need those and I wouldn't buy them. So be diversified, but that's different from owning some of everything. Uh, Nick, have a think about the IT companies you own. If you feel like they are diverse enough, then great. If you have 50% of your portfolio in in just consumer, sorry, just in um, uh, electronic hardware, for example, let's just say that, right? I, I would say that's too much. I don't think, I don't think fifty percent in any particular narrowly defined industry, as we would define it from a, um, uh, you know, from from an actual business operations perspective, is, is particularly great. I think we say that about the banks all the time. Uh, I would say that any sector, I think, because even, even if you're right and those companies do really really well. You just certainly don't, you know, you don't want to take that risk because like you know, no one foresaw the current pandemic nor the economic consequences of it. You really, really don't want to run blindly into that sort of problem. So own 50% tech absolutely, if those tech companies aren't really tech, but are actually spread across a spectrum of different types of risks and opportunities, different customer bases, different business model dynamics, by all means do that. Uh, but I would say for anybody listening, it just makes no sense, right? Even if in the force of time you're giving up some return to do that. Possibly in a different is you're giving up a whole lot of return to do that because the, the return you're getting from being diversified might in some cases be great, in some cases may not give you the same results you want. Much better that than being completely exposed to one risk factor. And look, if you're a bank shareholder right now, you feel like a heap of pain, right? Because you had too many banks in your portfolio. Just be careful, be, be sensibly diversified. Doc's point on blue chips is right. I hate the term blue chips with a passion because it is completely amorphous. Doc's viewers, these are the low volatility companies. Other people would say blue chips are companies that are really, really, really well known and have been around forever. Um, Other people would say they're over a certain size market cap. It's a really useless term, A, because everyone defines it differently and B, because it doesn't tell you anything about the quality of the businesses or the long-term potential future returns from those companies. So yes, to some degree, if you wanted to narrowly define it well, if you ask me to define blue chip usefully, I would say to Doc's point, businesses that have been long-term outperformers um, you know, long-term compounders with decades of history. That would be my version of blue chip. Now, other people would probably disagree with that. Um, that, by the way, would take out Qantas, it would take out Blue Scope, it would take out BHP. Um, even with the banks with 30 years of compounding results, you know, they've got more risks than other companies do have. I just think it's a really not very useful definition and you shouldn't feel like you need to own blue chips just because other people do or just because they exist. I think it's a really uncomfortable reality that, some people in our industry sell stuff by saying it's blue chip. And therefore you're kind of inclined to think, well, that must be safe and good and better and reliable and worthwhile. And you feel better about buying them because they feel somehow everyone else is doing it. So I should too. Um, That's a sales trick. It's not an investing category. So I would, I would ignore those Nick and you're right to not have any. That doesn't mean you shouldn't have a company that someone else calls blue chip. If you like the company, but don't buy it just because it's blue chip. Um, I'll go with doc on the allocation too across the different, um, uh, the size of the portfolio. I, I think whatever you're comfortable to keep track of is the right thing for you. I think there's some value in buying a stock when you like it. And if you like more, buy more later. If you like something else better, then buy that. I think you shouldn't necessarily restrict yourself. The Doc's point, if you have a company you don't like anymore, you don't trust, or you don't believe it's going to beat the market, then of course sell it and buy something else you think is going to do better. So you should always be trying to improve your portfolio. Uh, but there's any harm if you're a collector. It sounds like you might be um, buying when you think they're good value and only selling if you think they're no longer good value or they're simply a better place for your money rather than being specific about I only want X companies or Y number is too many or too few. Uh, just build a portfolio as you go. And if you need to sell something to find funds for something you like better, then by all means sell. If you don't, then by all means keep adding to your portfolio. Um, uh, it's, 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 it's completely, you know, as long as you can follow the companies, There's no real restriction. It is, as Doc said, horses for courses. Any more on that, mate? No, I think it covers it. Easy. Question from uh, from Mitchell. Mitchell, there's a question for the podcast. First name only, please. Hey, Mitchell. I got you. got you covered. He says, hi, Scott and Doc. I love the podcast, especially when you delve deeper into what you do and don't like about specific companies. My question is regarding the differences in fortune between Webjet and corporate travel management. They've both been hammered as expected since the coronavirus outbreak has grown, but corporate travel has doubled from its lows in mid-March and WebJet has continued to struggle. Is this largely debt and ongoing costs related? I was expecting to hear more about corporate travel's woes given it had been heavily shorted recently, I thought due to high debt levels. Cheers, Mitch. Doc, difference in WebJet and corporate travel
1: um so I guess you know couple of, so there's an interesting thing here to think about um, even be, so okay so it looks like it, it feels that in terms of the share price action um, webjet has completely collapsed in share price whereas corporate travel has collapsed less that part of the reason is that share price of uh, of corporate travel had already retracted even before this thing started right whereas Webjet, Share price was pretty high, uh, in, in, you know because it it had so the part of the reason is um, corporate travel had some earnings uh, in a shortfall, whereas Webjet had uh, strong earnings and, and therefore you know market multiple was reflecting that at that time so that, you know so that's mm-hmm. that's sort of a re- reaction that's some background behind uh, that then I think corporate travel's debt load uh, as a business is lower than, um, uh, or was lower or is lower than what the debt load was for uh, WebJet. In a market like this, debt load absolutely matters. Uh, (laughs) And then what covenants are associated with debt loads also matter. Um, So that's the other thing. I mean, you know, corporate travel is just as hammered in terms of like, you know, when I say corporate travel, I mean business travel. Business travel is just as hammered as any other travel because, well, there's no travel happening, right? But it's the balance sheet for corporate travel. I think it was in a much better position. I'm actually quite surprised that they haven't raised cash. Um, or, or, you know. But I think part of that may be that they, because of the fact that they, uh, the debt position was better, than, uh, than, say, Webjet, they were in a better position, therefore, to renegotiate or get some revolver or get some, I think they've got some debt, but, you know, again, Scott might be able to add more color to this because he, you know, he knows this company uh, way better. So I, I think it was the positioning uh, of the company overall that, you know, made corporate travel sort of the, the best of the lot. You know, and this is the larger point here might be that actually in, in a situation like this, where, you are, where you're hit with something that you didn't see coming, your your balance sheet positioning really matters, you know. And and their balance sheet positioning was probably the best of the lot, and and maybe they will therefore get away uh, without having to raise any equity, right? And then when the market sees that, sort of, you know, the market becomes a little bit more uh, comfortable with it, right? And when the market sees that, oh, there's going to probably potentially a capital raise coming, which is likely to be dilutive, and then you go begging for cash, that creates problems. So I think you know, so that i think it's sort of my overarching view of why uh, corporate, transfer, corporate travel corporate share shares you know at a high level were hit you know because of shorting or whatever reason or because of the earnings flow and, and it, or actually the, the probably the right answer is because of a combination of those reasons mm-hmm. so, you know the so the valuation overall was cheap on an ape basis uh, you know it's it's like a you know, 15 times earnings or something like that right now uh, whereas webjet was significantly higher so i think that got reflected and then you know the deposition. so you know again scott knows this company much better we've talked a lot about web and what went wrong so i'll turn it over back to captain
0: yeah thanks mate really good summary there the other thing i'd probably add um for what it's worth is the difference is webchats had to raise a whole lot of capital and so not only was the business itself more precarious and this is and you made you made a good point i hadn't thought about that as we looked at this question earlier, but the, the fact that you're certainly starting from a different starting point is really, really important, right? If you have a company on 100 times earnings, one on 10 times earnings, you should assume that if, the, if something goes badly across the board, um, that the company more richly valued but has the same economic and financial outcomes, which is no flights, no business. <laughs> um, it simply has further fall before, before some sort of kind of care and maintenance level. And that's, that's absolutely story. it was It was performing incredibly, incredibly well um, and I've got to say, like, no, no, one, no one deserves the, the pandemic, of course, but for really well-performing companies, it feels particularly cruel, doesn't it? <laughs> Short of this, without this, they, they continue to do really, really well. Um, in a different parallel universe, Webjet's a $20 stock right now. Corporate travel's back to $25 and we're, you know, we're, all, we're, all, we're all whistling Dixie. Um, so there's, there's that absolutely is a really good point, Doc. But, yeah, you know, Webjet's almost doubling its share count. And so the reality is on a per-share basis, the WebJet share price, yes, it hasn't recovered, but to some degree, because it's only, hasn't fallen further, it's probably, you know, quasi-recovery, right? So if, if shares were, I can't remember what they were for that whole time, about $3.30 for memory, something like that. Um, in theory, if they doubled the share count, the share should have fallen to $165. So if they're now trading at $270-ish, and I haven't looked today, but let's say it's that, um, that's, a, that's not far off an 80% gain from that low. And so when you talk about corporate travels recovery, WebJet's recovery, on a, on a total business basis has actually been really good, but because I have had to issue so many new shares, which is all you and I should care about. And that's why you don't get any bonus points for the business doing well. If the share count gets diluted. Um, That's why we've banged on about dilution for a couple of weeks. Doc in particular has been dead right on this one. That's exactly what can happen. If you get that sort of scenario where you've got to issue more shares, any recovery in the business can be masked at a per share level by the fact there's twice as many shareholders you've got to pay.
1: Yeah, I'll just add quickly one thing, Like you know, so here's, here's the scenario, right? In the scenario that actually uh, corporate travel gets through this, the corporate travel business actually gets through this without having to raise capital on the other side, you actually, as a corporate travel shareholder, would would likely see a much quicker benefit accruing to them because the dilution didn't happen. So, um, so uh, you know, the market is pretty smart and, it you know, when it thinks that that's, when it starts discounting the probability, it basically says, well, you know, um, you know, this, this looks like, you know, at at you know, even if it takes five years to get there, the, the stock then looks starts looking cheap, right? So again, so I, I think the dynamics the, the debt dynamics were actually very interesting. Um, mm-hmm. as as as, like, as an academic exercise between the three companies, right? Um, you know, Flight Center, Webjet and Corporate Travel. Um and, and it, it's got nothing really at this point to do with business dynamics, right? Because both leisure and corporate travel have been equally hit. But it's just the dead dynamics, I think, that played a big role. So I think that's a, it's a good question. I love it.
0: Very good. Excellent question. Let's move on. We've got a question from Valkmeyer. That's the handle. I don't have a name on Twitter. He says, hi, feels Loving every podcast episode that comes out. Thank you very much. If a company raises capital, we've talked about that on Friday, like we have seen many of them do in the past few weeks, is it generally a good time to buy shares in the company you like? If the share price gets closer to the offer price, is there anything to be cautious of? Full on, Valkwire. All right, Doc. So let me, let me try and rephrase the question. Companies are raising capital right now. How do you think about A, whether to participate in the capital raising, and B, whether or how attractive the shares are to buy on market.
1: Yeah. So at a very high level, number one, any company that's raising capital right now, I look at them with a lot of skepticism because they're raising capital, (laughs) largely because they have no choice and they need the capital. If they don't get the capital, uh, they're going to probably have a hard time. They could even go bankrupt. Right. So this is, this is a very defensive move, um, so keep that in mind. So any company raising capital right now is doing so because it's a, it's a defensive move. This is not a position of strength. Number two is the thing to look at is, look. so if, you're, if, you're, if there's a capital raise and let's say you know, a rights offer, I think the, the thing to look at is how much are you gonna be paying to, you know, to participate in the rights offer or the share placement plan, and what's the share price, right? Mm. And then you have gotta think about that share price the total diluted base of shares post the capital raise, mm. and then think about what the earnings are going to be in the future. That's the equation. So then we have you know talked about Webjet a lot. So Webjet basically said, we're gonna raise capital at this price, and effectively the share count has doubled. Which mm. basically means that if the company's, you know, whatever the company's earnings was in 2019, if the company has the same earnings that it had in 2019 in 2023, mm. effectively the earnings per share is actually half. Of that, it was in 2019. Correct. Right. So keep that in mind. And therefore, you have to keep that, you know, so usually keep the dilution in mind and then think about, you know, I'm not saying that prices are not, cannot be cheap. They can. Uh, but all I'm saying is that keep the dilution in mind. You know, um, basically a $10 stock or $15 stock for Flight Center today is not the same thing as a $15 stock two years ago because of the fact of dilution, right? everybody owns a smaller piece of the, of the pie. Uh, each share basically corresponds to a smaller piece of the pie. So keep that in mind. Then, of course, you know if you you know you have to have a few view of the future, and then think about you know what you're paying and what your sort of potential upside is. Uh, third is that sometimes, sometimes the the company participating in a in a capital raise will see its share price actually fall below the capital raise price. That almost always is a bad sign. <laughs> it's a bad <laughs> sign because what the market is saying is that this does not help. Or this does. That. In fact, you know, you would expect the shares to be somewhere around that value or higher as the capital risk price. If it is not, then that is almost always a red flag. Again, I'm saying almost always. Nothing is a certainty in investing, but um, you know, you could just use this it. as pretty good, uh, you know, cross check to say, well, you know, something is not right here. So use that. Um, yeah. So yeah. So if you're if you're interested in buying shares in something and you have the potential of buying at a discount in a rights then do that or in a share placement plan, do that. But again, think about the dilution that's going to impact your earnings.
0: Very good, thank you, Matt. I, I can't disagree too much with that. I think, and then again, a, it depends on why they're raising capital, right? Like Rees, for example, the plumbing company is raising money purely it says, just take advantage of acquisition opportunities. Now in that case, very different scenario to WebJet which basically had to raise capital to stay in business. So there are different, there are, there are different capital raisings for different purposes. Um, some people are tempted to say, "Well, okay, the, the shares are now trading at three bucks. They're raising capital at two fifty. If I buy my shares at two fifty, I get an immediate fifty cent profit, and that feels really attractive." Now, if it stays that way, that actually can be the case, right? But there's no guarantee. Like with Webjet, for example, raised capital at two seventy. The share price was three thirty. The share price now was around two seventy-ish. Last time I checked, I'll have a, a quick look while I'm talking. How's that for multitasking? Currently, two seventy-one. Right. So if you if you participate in the Webjet capital raising at two seventy. To try and sell your shares at three thirty, well, guess what? At best, you get a one cent profit. You're probably not going to make that the brokerage cost back in terms of um, taking advantage of that. So, I, I, you know, it seems attractive. It seems like there's a, you know, money for nothing kind of deal. Occasionally, that is the case. And it's not impossible that some companies will make money if you kind of take advantage of, of capital raisings at some level and sell at a different price. Um, but it's just, it, it seems too good to be true. It often is. Just be a little bit careful there with, with how, you're, how you're participating on that one. In the past, look, it has happened from time to time. It does work. There are people who have and will say this can make money and it can. It's just a not very low risk scenario. You could end up being stuck with companies that lose a lot of money. Maybe you lose your entire investment or simply you're stuck with shares you never wanted uh, or you're paying short-term capital gains tax something you're not really making enough money on. And that money could have been better off spent invested somewhere else something with more long-term compounding prospects. Work for you, Doc? Yes, sir, it works. All right. Mate, I got a question or a comment actually, which I quite liked. Uh, the comment came through on Facebook from Joshua. He says, Evening, Captain, longtime listener and member of SA, EO, and DI. That's Fool share advisor, extreme opportunities, and dividend investor. He said, I was just catching up on the podcast from the 31st of March. Three ways to get your finances in order. And wanted to let you know and the gang know that Victoria go one better than New South Wales. Oh, dear. A bit, of, a bit of shade being thrown at Sydney from the Melbourneites from the sound of it. He says, uh, not only can you upload your bill and get a better rate, I should say hashtag get a better rate, on your power bill, the Victorian government will also send you a cheque for 50 bucks for your troubles. How good is that, Doc? So not only can you get a better rate, which we're massively fans of, the Victorian government will actually send you 50 bucks just for going through the process. That's all right, isn't it? I have to move to Melbourne now so for victorian listeners go to compare.energy.vic.gov.au that's compare.energy.vic.gov.au i imagine you can probably google compare victorian energy or something and you can get 50 bucks from the government and i assume in almost all cases also pay less on your energy that's a pretty good deal so a bit of a community service and joshua thank you very much for getting in touch thanks for letting us know about that because that's something we're big fans of man. if we can help our listeners then we're pretty happy with that I love it. All right, let's go with a question from Elliot. He says, G'day Scott and Doc. What an awesome podcast. Hashtag get Doc on Insta. Yes, this was an Insta question. Thank you, Elliot, for jumping on the gram, as I like to call it, because none of the cool kids do and it makes you seem old and out of touch. Uh, on the Instagram questions, we had one from Elliot and it is, I have experienced plenty of volatility as an Extreme Opportunities member of late, but thanks to your guidance over the past few weeks, I haven't freaked out and continue to hold on and now down only a single digit percentage. My general advice only question, he puts out in air quotes, which is nice, is about the first stock I bought on my own, collection house, and it's been a dog ever since. The CEO walked out and now it is in a trading hole as they revalue their debt. I've always had the intention to hold for the long term, but things are not looking all that great. How do you choose to either sell and reinvest elsewhere or hold and write it out? So, Doc, I don't know if you know collection house particularly well, but the general question, how do you decide when it's time to just simply head for the hills and how do you decide when to dig in and wait for the storm to pass?
1: Yeah, great question. I mean, selling is usually much harder than actually than buying. Uh, Isn't it? <laughs> it, 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 yeah, because, because you not only have to, you know, you have to think through the process, but you also have to work with biases that, you know, anchoring and, you know, various things. So it's it's really hard and, and we all struggle with that as well. Um, in, so here's the thing. He, I, so he's a, given that he, you know, uh, Elliot is, a, is an EO member. What we do at, which we try to do, at Extreme Opportunities is we try to sort of think about what our thesis is, right? So, and, and with Extreme Opportunities, he said, you know, he was down a lot, then he's down uh, less now because of the volatility. Um, what again? As we have said, the service is going to be very volatile because it's mostly small, smaller stocks. When I say small stocks, these are really small caps, so uh, you know, small micro caps. So these companies, their share prices bounce around a lot, um, and and that bounces around because their future future also <laughs> bounces around. You know, their future variations bounce around a lot, but also because again, they have less shares on. Um, you know they're less liquids, right? So there's less shares out, which means there's less liquid. Less liquid, which means you know the share prices move a bit on um, mm. on trading as well. Now, in terms of what how we think about um, selling, what we do is we we have a thesis for for every company that we recommend, and and every time we recommend something, we also have a you know risk and when you would sell a section. Actually, you know it's a section that one might think that we you know we provide because you know, we need to provide it, it's like a completely special, so it's actually quite a bit of thought goes into that. We, what we try to think about is, how could things go wrong and you know possibly go wrong? And, you know, what could derail the thesis, right? And that's really important because, the reason that's important, at least in my mind, is you want, to, you want to know, you want to have a projection of the, of how you expect a company to perform. But you also want to have mm-hmm. a projection of how the company can actually hit roadblocks and those roadblocks some roadblocks are easy to overcome some are not so easy to overcome right and you want to have an understanding of that and when you see a company is, com- is coming up against those roadblocks then you want to evaluate whether or not it's going to be able to overcome them and if you if you think they can't and on balance of probabilities you think it can't then that's a good time to sell right so so that's what we, we typically never actually sell at an, an extreme options on valuation Largely because, again, we are recommending companies which are small, which we think would have large, you know, long runways, and therefore they can grow for a long time, right? Ideally, we would want these small companies to become large. And at that time, you know, mm-hmm. it becomes a different question. Then valuation plays a bigger role. Right now, we're thinking, well, okay, you know, they can, you know, do different things, uh, you know, become become the leader in whatever field they have chosen to be. And, and at a later point in time, we consider the valuation most, you know, so valuation is considered, but it's, it's, it's a little bit of a, um, it's it's not as stringent as, you know, as you, you look at a good example Right, we were talking about in, on Friday, for example, BUBS, right? You would not, mm. you know, the valuation lens with which we look at BUBS and the valuation lens with which you look at A2 mil are completely different, right? You know, one is like a tens of billion dollars market cap company. One is less than a billion dollar market cap company. You know, ones yeah. have billions of dollars of sales or hundreds of millions of dollars of sales. Uh, you know, another has you know tens of millions of sales. So, uh, so those are, those are very very different companies. So that's the, that's the thing. Permanent roadblocks um, is one. Survivability is another one. that's very important for small caps. Is you know, if you think the company is actually not going to survive. But that can be a problem. And that can be a problem in, a, a, you know, there's a company that I had recommended don't taking any names uh, right now because uh, I don't want to, you know, um, bad mouth a company that's no longer on the scorecard but was on the scorecard. <laughs> but what, what might happen is like, you know, a company has a promise for a certain product, right? The product sales is going to grow over time. But, If the sales do not grow fast enough and the market is unhappy with it, then what happens is basically the the credit available to the company or the ability to raise money actually starts disappearing, And that is a spiraling loop in which a company can actually get caught and you basically just get dilution and dilution and dilution and you don't have enough (laughs) money to actually drive the growth. A lot of the companies on extreme opportunities actually need uh, cash to drive sales and marketing, right? And if you don't have that cash, availability of that cash, either via – you know, organically generation of the business or via the equity markets, then you're going to, to run into problems. So, so I think sort of, yeah, thinking about the liquidity position thinking about the ability to, you know, overcome challenges, which might be via competition or changes in the market dynamics. Um, those are sort of the things to think about, um, you know, any, yeah. So I think typically what are the, you know, think about a thesis and think about how the thesis could break and if we think that this is breaking, then we typically sell. So that's what we tend to do. Mm.
0: Yeah, good advice. I think that's, that, that's yeah, you, you covered it nicely, mate. I can't add too much more. I think the only thing I'd say is have a think about it as if you didn't own the shares now, would you buy them today? If you, if, you, if you like the business, you like the price, and you genuinely think, if, if, if you're, it's one of the great ways, I, I've never done it myself and I don't, would never do it for obvious actual tax and, and cost reasons, but there are some fan managers who, who take the approach to say, when you, assume every night your, your entire portfolio is sold. When the next morning when you walk in, would you buy it back? Would you buy the same companies in the same proportion you already own them? If you're, you're forced to go to cash, if I liquidated your entire portfolio now and then Monday morning I said, right, go, on, go and buy, buy you buy know, a portfolio of shares. If you wouldn't buy it back the same way you've already got it, that's a pretty good sign that you need to make some changes in your portfolio. Now, I'm not a fan of making too many changes because there is time, there's hassle, there's cost. Frankly, you can be wrong. And so you've got, you got to be right twice, the sell and the buy. But that being said, if, if you like collection as you think, you know what, Despite everything that's going through at today's price, it's a really attractive idea. I love it, I want to own the shares, then fantastic. If you say, well, no, I wouldn't, of course I wouldn't buy them today, but I own them already, so I guess I should hold them. Then that's a good sign you're anchoring to the shares you own uh, and also called the endowment effect. We, we value things more highly that we own rather than things that we don't. So those are two biases that can grab you. Uh, be careful of that. But, yeah, generally speaking, if you wouldn't buy it today, then it's a good sign you probably should sell. Any more on that, Doc? No, that's good. Very good. We got to get a last question, a last comment from Elliot on the bottom of his uh, message, mate. He says, lastly, I've heard how many times you both love Qantas. How much you give uh, – how about you give Virgin Australia a go when restrictions are lifted? He says, hopefully, it will survive. I'm sure you'll be surprised. Thanks, Elliot. Obviously, Elliot, a Virgin staffer. I should say for the record, I actually do like Virgin. I like flying Virgin. Um, I'm more than happy to, to fly Virgin regularly. I think I have flown more Virgin flights than Qantas in the last couple of years for what it's worth. It's funny that the um, the, the human kind of, the, the emotional part of our lives, as much as you and I consider ourselves rational investors who are not overly emotional and not overly kind of swayed by those things, we still have our favorite brands, right? And sometimes that's rational. And sometimes that's just that irrational part of our brains that like things because we like things and you know I I certainly have a lot of the whole the whole call Australia home connotation with Qantas and the national airline there's just something that kind of sticks in the mind in the subconscious um, well I actually but,
1: I, you know I don't mind I don't mind uh, uh, yeah. at all. like I mean we we um we fly um, Virgin yeah, yeah we fly we fly Virgin to uh, Gold Coast quite often uh, uh largely because uh, of the timing that um you know, Virgin can offer us versus Qantas, which doesn't offer as much choices. Um, yeah, like you know, it's, it's an interesting thing about Qantas. You know, here's the problem. I think people like airlines also for irrational reasons. So one of the reasons I like, um, you know, uh, Qantas is you know the frequent fly program, right? And and it's it's an irrational reason to actually yeah, yeah, like, yeah. like 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 an airline. Uh, but yeah, like actually. I, I, I don't mind. I, th- I think, as I said, you know, I love two airlines. Being in Australia, I love the fact that you know Virgin is actually a great airline. Um, yeah, and you know, we do we do give our dollars to Virgin as
0: well. <laughs> so, uh, if we're on your flight, mate, make sure you say good day. All right. Eventually, when when we get back in the air, if we ever get back in the air, feels like a long way away, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. <laughs> All right. Question from Glenn, mate, and and this is one I don't I don't expect you will have a long answer. On but well, let's try. It. He says, hi, Scott, not sure if it's too late for the Sunday mailbag. Well, this was sent last week, so it was, but uh, not too late for this Sunday's mailbag, Glenn. He says, what do you think the oil stocks will do on Tuesday? And he lists a couple, Wally, Wally, uh, Woodside, and ZDL. I don't even know that company. Thanks, Glenn. Uh, We've covered that on Friday, to some degree, Doc, our view on oil stocks generally. Uh, Under what circumstances would you buy an oil stock, man?
1: Pretty much Never. (laughs) <laughs> it, it's again yeah, it's a commodity that seems it's hard. It, yeah it's, it's a commodity so it's hard for me to you really need to know the commodity cycle very well and be willing to play that it's just not my game
0: yeah I think that's right I um yeah I, I, look I, the problem with, with so I wouldn't I don't normally well I've never bought a commodity stock so that's a good, sign, good starting point I think there is definitely an opportunity for the opportunistic investor to buy a commodity stock when the price of that commodity is close to the marginal cost of production. Um, It's a boring phrase that basically means, let's say, say, Doc and I both make widgets. Doc's widgets cost $8 to make and mine cost 10 and we both sell them for 12. That means I'm making $2 a widget, Doc makes $4 a widget because he's the lowest cost producer because he's smarter and better than this than I am. Uh, And so, you know, right now he's making four and making, when the price gets to $10, I'm breaking even. Doc's still making some money. Now, the marginal cost of production is the cost of the last widget required. So, if Doc can make ten, like, and I can make five, and the market needs twelve, then it's using up all of his at eight bucks. It's got to use two of mine at ten. So, the marginal cost is the cost of the last widget produced, which is ten bucks. When the price is close to that, there's a very good chance that the risk return is in your favour because. Yeah, the price could go lower than that because supply and demand does these things from time to time. But at some point, I'm going to go out of business or the price is more likely to go up than down. And again, this is all probabilities, right? So this is not long-term foolish investing. This is um, speculation slash kind of opportunistic investing if it's your thing. It's not my thing, but if it's your thing. So when the price is down towards the marginal cost, there's less probability that it goes below or stays below that marginal cost and more chance that over time it goes higher. So you're likely to make money. And the same with iron ore, gold, copper, zinc, silver, all those things. The best time to buy from a risk return perspective is when the price is close to that marginal cost. And the problem with oil is, as we said on Friday, the, the usual rules of supply and demand don't exist because it's a cartel operating you try to try and restrict the supply and push the price up. And so you really, I mean, the marginal cost of production of oil, or sorry, of oil out of Saudi Arabia is apparently like eight or nine bucks a barrel. Now, if, in other words, if the market was left to its own devices, if it was a perfectly competitive market, you could probably buy oil for 10 or 12 bucks a barrel, right? Which is just phenomenal considering where it's been, even where it is now. That's still a good, what, 40% below the current price stock. So, you know, there's, there's reasons why ordinarily you'd think, well, if the price got 10 bucks a barrel, I guess I'd buy some because every chance it goes higher than that over time. Fair enough, I guess. Um, if it doesn't, then, then, you know, I guess you're not going to lose a heap. Um, again, if you're a speculative investor, I, I don't want to encourage people to do this, but that's the time I'd buy commodity companies I was going to. Now, at 20-something dollars, it does feel like we're down around the lowest price we've been for a very, very long time. And probabilistically, I would say the future price is likely to be higher than lower if you have a long enough time horizon. The problem at 20 bucks a barrel is most of these companies can't make money. Oil all search marginal cost for memory. I want to say it was about 27 bucks stock, I think, last time I saw. Now, if you... If you're drilling it and getting it in a barrel for 27 bucks, and you're getting $19 every time you sell some, it doesn't take a genius to work out the more you sell, the more money you lose. Um, and so a bit like those other companies we've talked about with issues where the economy is shut down, you've either got a choice of either selling for a loss or you don't sell any at all. Those are both pretty ordinary options, particularly for companies with lots of debt. Also, it's raised a massive chunk of change. I think this time last week, mate. Um, so it's, you know, tempting to think the price might go up from here and it may, Uh, But if you go broke in the meantime, it's not going to help you. Any more thoughts on that, mate? No, I think you covered it. Beautiful. Let's go on a question from Andy. It says, hi, Scott and Doc. Andy here. I listen to the podcast every week and I've recently become a member of both Extreme Opportunities and Share Advisor along with a few of my mates. Awesome. Thanks, Andy. I enjoy hearing both of your straight-talking views And the podcast has gone a long way in helping me learn as I'm failing you on my investing journey. Despite this, I'm not in any way shaken by recent events. Well done, and believe it's a great lesson for me to be learning in my twenties now. It absolutely is. I haven't sold any stocks and have been averaging in. I was hoping you could shed a light on some light on a question I have for the podcast. How do ETFs not become diluted? Does the ETF provider simply just buy more stocks of the underlying assets at market price when someone wants to buy into the ETF? Thanks, guys, and keep up the great work. Now, Doc, as, uh, as Andy kind of infers here, an ETF is a weird thing. It's not, you know, most companies' shares, there's a certain number of shares, and other than capital raising, which we've talked about plenty in the last couple of days, generally speaking, you know, uh, let's pick up these, Woolworths won't increase its number of shares over its, over its life, right? unless it needs capital, unless it's buying back shares, and both those are possible they have the same number of shares effectively forever. There's employee share options and bits and pieces, but let's just keep it simple. That you know, you, If I buy shares of Woolies, I'm buying them for you, you're selling them for me, it's all good. With an ETF, you can actually have more buyers than sellers, which isn't supposed to happen with shares, right? Because for every buyer, you're supposed to have a seller. In the case of an ETF, you can, they can create units at will. They can literally just say, okay, well, I want to buy the ETF. No one else wants to sell, that's okay. We'll just create more units for Scott to buy. That means more... ETF units, in other words, the equivalent of shares, ordinarily that would be dilutive. Why isn't it dilutive now, mate?
1: Well, he's already answered it um, by saying that, you know, you basically buy more of the underlying, right? So, um, you know, you've got, you know, let's say an ETF is composed of Woolies and uh, Commonwealth Bank and ANZ and, you know, other other companies, basically, you know, if you had say hundred shares of each previously, you could just, you know, you could make it 150. To account for the additional demand, right? And you just, you know, you're basically increased, you created more units by buying the equivalent number
0: of underlying shares. So. Yep. Yeah. So it's like in your own bank account, if you put another hundred bucks in the investment account and you want to buy more shares of some other company, you don't dilute your share count, you actually add to the share count by buying more Commonwealth Bank shares. An ETF is just a holding st- structure for your own portfolios. Yeah. Rather you owning five Commonwealth Bank shares and five Woolly shares and five BHP shares, the ETF owns it for you. And as you add money, it's like putting more money in your own portfolio. You don't dilute your own portfolio when you add to it. You to think about ETFs the same way. And as Doc said, you're absolutely spot on, Andy. Nice work. He, uh, he also says, P.S. Still can't find Doc's Instagram page. I tried to tag him in some food pics. Doc, you got to get an Instagram, <laughs> mate. How are you going to see Andy's food pics if you're not on Instagram?
1: Well, I'm seeing it on, this, uh, on the Google Doc here and I love the food pics.
0: Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, he's put a couple of emoji apples there for you. There you go.
1: Yeah, there's a green apple and a red apple. I love both of them, <laughs> so that's great.
0: <laughs> All right. Next question from Mitch. is morning, Scott. Firstly, a massive thanks to you, the doc, and the incredible team at TMF, the Motley Fool, globally for offering such pragmatic and honest advice. Pretty refreshing in this day and age, especially in such a smoke and mirrors industry. Thank you, Mitch. It's very kind, mate. We do our best, and that's... Uh, uh, fr- frankly, it is nice and humbling to be recognized that way. We do our level best, mate. Um, yeah, we're, we're, not, we're not perfect. No one's perfect, but we are, we are trying to be the good guys. So appreciate your, your kind words. He says, I'm a strong advocate of both EO and SA services and, of course, the podcast. Your ongoing education and insight has made me a much better investor and definitely more comfortable in my investments during the turmoil. He says, I actually look forward to the downturns in the market as I'm confident in the businesses I'm a part owner of and love looking for other business opportunities for companies unreasonably beaten down by market sentiment. We like that a lot. A question for the podcast, if I may. Do you mind advising what the recent announcement from Treasury Wine Estates means to shareholders? The mention of Treasury shareholders then owning a share in both companies, and that's Treasury and Penfolds, I'll get to that in a second. Does this mean... 1,000 shares in Treasury equals a 1,000 in both going forward, or is it 500 in each? Thanks in advance, full-on Mitch. Doc, have you followed the Treasury Penfolds Demerger talk?
1: I was going to basically, you know, uh, bounce this back to you because Treasury <laughs> is uh, your company, That's not good. my company, but uh, you know a lot about this.
0: I own the shares and it's a recommendation of ours at ShareAdvisor, so yes, absolutely both, both ways. I know a bit more about it. Um, so here's the thing, Treasury Wine Estates is a global wine company that includes a whole lot of local and international brands. The brands most Australians would know would include Penfolds, Lindemans, Wins, uh, Yellow Glen is one of theirs, a the whole lot of brands, heaps of brands. And the company's done a really, really good job of basically reinventing itself. It was almost taken over at a dirt cheap price quite a few years ago. Uh, the, the then CEO, the current CEO, who's now living, Michael Clark, did a great job with his team of... Basically, batting off that takeover bid and creating real value for the company. Now, the last couple of years have been a bit rockier. Uh, the US business hasn't done particularly well. Uh, they've had some pricing issues and, frankly, a, an executive leave who they're saying was responsible for sales being down in the current year. So, it's not it's not been a, a smooth path. Uh, but in recent days, Treasury has said, "Look, what we might do might do is demerge the Penfolds brand from the rest of the portfolio." Now, their view is, and I. I I'll kind of like this, I'll get your thoughts on it later, but their view is that if they separate Penfolds, the two businesses separately will sell for more than the, the, the one business at altogether. So that, the idea there is somehow that five plus five will equal 11 by the time it's separated rather than the 10 the, the shares are currently selling for now. Uh, I, I think either the market's stupid or the company's wishful thinking or maybe both. If the company market's prepared to pay more for two separate businesses that were once the single business, uh, I, I, I am staggered that people think that's even slightly sane, but from time to time, it does actually happen. And, and frankly, the shares jumped 7% on the news when it was announced that I was thinking about it. So what do I know? Maybe maybe the market knows something I don't, or maybe the market is just irrational and continues to be so. But they're going to merge, all the toys sorry, talking about the merging pen files. I would like to keep it together for what it's worth. I think, yes, separately might be valued by the market differently, but the scale benefits of having these businesses together having a single portfolio, single distribution, one point of sales, for example, makes a whole lot more sense to me than taking single brands and hiving them off. Um, now, Penfolds is the absolute, you know, jewel in the crown for treasury. And that's, if they're going to do it, I guess that's the brand you want to spin out. Uh, makes some sense. So that's that's the general kind of what's happening. I, I wouldn't do it if I was them. I'd keep them together. Uh, as a shareholder, I'd happily vote for that to remain the case because I think it's a stronger business together than separately. Now, that being said, the question about the breakup, Mitch, I would suggest you don't think about the number of shares per se because it can be any number, like, like with share prices, right? Treasury shares are currently 10 bucks a share. If they simply did a share split, there'd be twice as many shares at $5 each. If they consolidated one for two, there'd be half as, half as many shares at the same, you know, double the price. Uh, either way, the company's worth what it's worth. So think about the company value rather than the individual share price or the share count. Look at it this way. Let's say Treasury is a billion-dollar company. I'm just using those numbers to make it easy. And let's say Penfolds itself as a standalone brand will be worth half a billion dollars. When they demerge that business, if they do it, you'll have a one business that's a $500 million treasury without Penfolds and a $500 million treasury business. And shareholders will own those businesses equally, just in two separate businesses rather than one. So whether there's 1,000 or 500 shares, it doesn't really matter because the question really is not so much you know, they could issue you one treasury, one penfold share worth a dollar or 15 penfold shares worth, use a bad example there, worth um, six and a half cents each. Um, The number of shares you get isn't really relevant. What you'll end up with is two companies and your shareholding, if the market's rational or reasonably rational, it should be in this case, two shareholdings that together are worth something close to what the current business is worth in a single bite. So if you've got... A thousand bucks worth of treasury shares, you could assume you'll end up with a thousand dollars worth of shares in the combined old new treasury and penfolds as separate businesses. Uh, And the the, the number of shares you get will just be a function of the price they set per treasury share or per penfold share. It's simply just that's just the calculation error. It's almost the result of the calculation rather than the input. But if you've got a thousand bucks worth of shares, you'll end up with a thousand dollars worth of shares after the split, just in two separate businesses rather than in one. Anything on that, Doc? Uh,
1: no, I think you covered everything.
0: Thank you, sir. To my best. Question from Matthew on Insta, of course. Hi, Scott. Recently started looking into investing and listening to the podcast. I understand you can't give direct advice, but wanted to know your general opinion on STW. It's an ASX code. We'll get to that in a sec. He says, keep up the great work and hashtag, you know what it is, doc. Get Doc on Insta. Mate, I'm going to say there's an overwhelming number of people now. You're going to, at some point, have to do the right thing, aren't you? And, and just, you know, talk, you know, just just do what the people want. You're you're a man of the people. At some point, surely you've got to join Instagram. How, how many more people need to demand? I mean, they, they, they need you on Instagram, mate. You're, they, you're letting them down is all I'm saying.
1: Uh, I might actually join Instagram and then I'll just post some uh, pictures or take it with my Apple iPhone and some pictures of my I thought
0: maybe that's the way, that's the way forward. Um, I like, it. I, just do I like well. it. I like it. All right. So, STW is an index fund. It's kind of, is it, I want to say, it's the, is it the oldest ASX 200 um, ETF? I think it yeah. might be. It's, it's run by State Street Global Advisors. Um, they have a group of things that they, SPDR or Spider is kind of the, the brand they sell them under. So, this is the Spider SP ASX 200 fund. It's the ETF that tracks the 200. What do you think, mate? For a new investor, is
1: it worth considering? Uh, so I, I'm I'm not a big fan of the ASX 200 index um, as a whole. Um, I, I I mean, actually, the ETF is fine. I mean, ETF, you know, it's one of the low-cost ETFs, and if that's what you want, uh, you know, it's a it's a basket, very quick quick way to buy um, buy everything at one go. E- the reason I don't like it large because it, it, it like any other. Well, so I'll rephrase that. Like, because they're focusing on ASX 200, then uh, what you really get is you're getting a whole bunch of, you know, banking exposure, mining exposure, and so on. And I'm just, you know, you get 30, 40% of the fund is going to be invested, 40% is going to be invested in things that are, um, you know, not growing or in a position which is going to be rough relative to where they have been in the past. So you you get exposure to parts of market that we try to avoid so that's one of the reasons I'm not a fan of the um, the ASX 200 ETFs I mean if you're if you're so inclined maybe the ASX 300 ETF is slightly better you still get similar sort of exposure but you at least get the exposure to uh, some of the smaller companies that you wouldn't get with mm. the SX 200 um, so I'm not, not a big fan of again but if you, if like I mean if you're making the bet that there's Going to be a recovery in the SX200, and therefore, you want to, you know, start by picking specific companies, you want to buy the SX200, and then you want to, you know, you're it added more of a trade. Uh, this one is doing not really a long term sort of thing. Um, then the SX200 is probably the ATF is a good good place to buy That's sort of my high level thoughts.
0: Yeah, I, I agree, man. This, I really, I, I really wish um, the Australian market was simply more diversified than it is because. Our general advice to most people getting started investing is: if you're not going to pick stocks, uh, you don't want to pick stocks. You're not ready to pick stocks. You want some other diversification or balance or, or ballast balance in your portfolio. And an a broad index ETF is kind of the easy way to get started as an investor, right? You just you're buying the market, you get what the market gets, and that's great. And if we were in America now, that'd be I'd be happily saying that all day, all day, every day, and twice on Sundays. Um, you know, an ETF is a, a broad index ETF is a wonderful way to get exposed to the market average return. And the, as you say, the fees on the STW are 0.13%, which is tiny. Uh, Vanguard is even less for the 300, which is 0.1%. It's phenomenal, like $1 for every $1,000. It's a very, very, very cheap way to invest. And as a, you know, to get the market return, which averages somewhere between nine and 11%, depending on what time period index you look at, it's it's a great way for most people to invest. The problem is that in Australia, as we've said before many times, the banks and miners together are about half the market. <laughs> and so there's just no diversification there, right? So I, I want to desperately say to everybody considering it, yes, buy a broad index because it just makes sense. Um, you know, you get the diversification, you get low cost, you get all that stuff that comes with it. The problem, unfortunately, is that right now, at least, it's a very difficult thing to try and recommend to people because I would never say to anybody, Hey, what you should do is fill your portfolio with half banks and miners. It just makes no sense. Makes no sense whatsoever. So I really, really struggle with this question. I hate not having a better option because I would really, really rather Matt to, to, to be able to give you a yes and say, yeah, go on, go and buy it by all means. I agree with doc. I think 300 is better than the 200. It's slightly cheaper management fee wise, but it's neither here nor there. It's, you know, three bucks for every $10,000 or something. It's just stupidly cheap. A difference in terms of between the two. Uh, But the 300, you get the next 100 companies. So ASX 200 is the 200 largest. The 300 is the 300 largest. So again, you get the extra 100. They're not tiny companies, but they're much smaller than the big 20 or 30 at the top of the market. And it does give you some extra potential return. Companies that are going to be the next big things will likely be in the 300, but not the 200. So there's benefit there. I don't know, Doc. I I I wish I had a better suggestion for Matt. Like I think... Investing in some sort of international ETF, an S&P 500 or a, a Vanguard has a rest of the world ETF, I think they're worth adding to. But I have to say, unless he wants to pick stocks particularly, I, I kind of feel like the, the Vanguard, VAS is the code, or this one, if you want to, the State Street, STW. I kind of feel like they, if you want to invest in a broad Australian ETF, there are no other alternatives, right? It's, it's either of those two. So I guess with reservations, I'd say, If you want to get the average market return in Australia, then buying the ETF will at least give you that.
1: Yeah, I mean, what I would say is that there's no, I mean, you know, on your brokerage account, there's no reason actually, in my mind, I mean, unless you are making a bet to buy uh, the SX200, because I mean, I'm almost certain, uh, there's, I'm not almost certain, but I, I feel that the weight of the the big banks and the miners and the insurers is is basically is just a recipe for dragging down returns, you know. I mean, if you want to buy an ETF, why not just buy the the S and P five hundred ETF available? I mean, you, you get a much broader diversification. Um, you you get um, you get five hundred companies. You get companies with global exposure, um, you know, including exposure to Australia, right? I mean. So I mean, I, I, my personal preference would just be to buy the um, the ETF. I think the Vanguard has an ETF that that does the S and P 500 right here, and you can just buy that. So I mean, if yeah, if I had to pick, I would pick that over the STW. Yeah, I,
0: look, I I, I don't necessarily disagree, man. I'll, I just for just for our listeners' sake, the, the difference there is, of course, you have got currency issues to be mindful of. Then not saying you shouldn't do it, just just obviously if the dollar was to move meaningfully in one, one direction or another, that may have a bigger impact on your portfolio in the medium term than any share price or market movement. And so they just need to be mindful that if they're going to do, I think they should add it to their portfolio. Absolutely. Um, I wouldn't discourage anyone from doing that buying an S&P 500 or a rest of the world ETF. Just be mindful that currency is going to play potentially a large, especially in this current world, um, a larger impact than even share price movement over the, over the short to medium term, depending on where the currency moves, if it moves at all. Is that fair to say?
1: I just dollar cost average.
0: Yeah. The other thing, I, I've got to have a look, at, better look at this. There is an equal weight ETF, which is the Van, Van Eck Vectors Australian Equal Weight ETF. Um, I've been planning to look at that for such a long time. I've never quite got around to doing it, mate. Um, but that one's, that one's interesting because it basically takes all of the companies. It's an ASX 50, I think? Can't remember. Anyway, they basically take it all in equal weight. And so they're uh, top 60, it is. Um, so rather, rather than choosing the ASX 200 and, and putting half in the banks and miners because they're half the index, they simply put around 1.75% give or take in each individual company in that index. And so you're kind of getting the overall, um, you're getting all the companies that are having to overpay or overinvest in the, the banks. Now, for all that, I, I, I kind of, the problem with that is it doesn't necessarily give you the long-term compound because it reweights. And so you kind of, they readjust. If, if a company goes up, they actually sell some of it to bring it back to equal weighting at some future point. So you kind of get, I know it's, it's really difficult. You kind of get this, um, uh, you're, you're, you're cutting your flowers and watering your weeds to some degree, which is great if you're in a contrarian market and you think companies will mean to revert. But if you end up with the big multi bag growers that have gone up three, four, five, ten times in, in weight, you'll never get that return because they'll keep selling out your gains and reinvesting that in the companies that have gone down. But I, I have to have a look at that one. I, I want to have a check over the long term and see how it performs relative to the market. That's maybe one other option, mate. What do you think?
1: I, I, I prefer that. that that's a better option uh, yeah I mean your banks weight to banks and miners would be would be reduced that doesn't make sense
0: there you go So that's something to have a look at but look what, what I would much rather you do Matthew is at least buy something and if it ends up being that then fine it would be either a docking on my first option uh, but I'd rather you do that than, than not buy anything at all or maybe buy a, 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 if you're not ready to buy individual shares I don't want you to buy a, buy a stock have it go down and then give up on investing so whatever you do Um, Doc's words are the right ones, dollar, cost, average. Last one from Leo, Doc. We've got time for one more, haven't we? Yeah. Beautiful. Leo says, hi, Scott and Doc. My name is Leo. I love the show. Thank you, mate. I've always been interested in investing, but never got the bug until stumbling on you guys. So thanks for the gift and thirst for knowledge. Excellent. Thanks, Leo. That's, That's quite cool. I have a question I was hoping you could answer. What do you guys think about the concept of circle of competence? when it comes to deciding where to hunt. I understand the idea, but I'm struggling to figure out where my circle starts and ends. I don't have a day job that gives me a particular deep insight into one sector that would obviously qualify as being within my circle of competence. For example, a software engineer's ability to understand the tech sector. How would one go about building this deep knowledge and competitive advantage, assuming we all have access to the same public information as outsiders? What sectors would you guys say are in your inner circle of competence? Thanks, Leo. I love this question, mate. It's a very, we, we, get, we don't get a lot of interesting theory questions. This one's a really, really cool one. So let's take them in order. Firstly, how would you suggest Leo goes about building his competence, his circle of competence in a particular area?
1: Well, that's a really cool question. I mean, yeah. So okay, so I'm going to answer a little bit about first. Uh, the the circle of competence fact, because that, so here's the thing, you know, circle of competence you can think about is stuff that you already know, your background knowledge, uh, you know, some of that might come from your work, from your study, from your experiences, and so on and so forth, right? And, and you know, it, of course, it goes over the years. It, however, it does not necessarily mean that suppose you are, you know, suppose you work in the oil industry, so, you know, oil and gas industry, then your sort of competence is probably oil and gas. But it doesn't mean that as an investor, you only have to invest in oil and gas. You can invest in tech. Right. Now, the question is then, how would you learn about tech? Look, I mean, yes, the curve is steeper, but you could also learn from your own experiences, right? I mean, you use technology every day. So, therefore, you could apply some of that, you know, the familiarity that you have with technology to, to build a base on understanding about technology, right? It's harder then you know the intimate details that one would know by being say you know a worker in the oil and gas industry so uh, i think as with anything else um time is the best for time and reading and you know just being exposed to different things is the best way to learn about uh, stuff um then i guess you know here's my favorite way to uh so one quick way to build knowledge about sort of competence uh, is, so pick what you want to learn about, right? So suppose you want to learn about the advertising industry or internet advertising. You know, the best place or one of the best places to start learning about internet advertising is to basically pick up the annual report for Google, pick up the annual report for Facebook and just read the 10 or 12 pages devoted to business. Uh, so one of the things I'll, I'll tell people is you would be surprised about the amount of information you can get by reading an annual report from a company that actually has gone into, uh, putting the effort to actually describe what its business is, what is it the industry it competes in, and you know what are sort of its strengths, what are the competition it sees and so on, what are the risks that you usually sees. Those 15 pages that you want to read uh, in the Google annual report or the Facebook annual report would probably be a good primer on getting a sense from their viewpoint, of course, but it's a very good way of getting an understanding of particular industry. Um, so my, my, you know, of course we don't have, so if you're not a software engineer, then you don't know about, you know, software tools and practices and things like that. But then the best place to learn is probably to pick, you know, um, you know a top flight or upcoming star in that field. Again, maybe it's harder to find that star, but if you can identify one and then pick the annual report Um, And read. That's probably the the quickest and the easiest way to build knowledge. That's number one. Number two is follow. uh, Maybe follow influencers uh, in in certain areas. If you're if you're interested in tech, uh, follow influencers in the Mm -hmm. VC world. Um, You know, uh, so Benchmark Capital, for example, is a good place to learn about software as a service. Uh, They invest a lot in that. So therefore, if you if you follow them, you'd learn very quickly. Um, You. You know, again, you get you. Know, you have to be able to sort of separate uh, sort of the wheat from the chaff. But you have to you have to you know, looking at the right place actually really helps. Um, reading some magazines can also help. That's a little bit harder, but I think you know the annual reports followed by following influences is probably the best uh, best way to quickly get up to speed on 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 a certain area that you're interested in learning about. Then, if you want to deepen your knowledge, I guess. Um, you can listen to independent experts in that area who you uh, come to trust, or you could, uh, you know, read industry-specific magazines, um, you know, so for tech, you can find n number of magazines that you're interested in, pick one, and, and you know, spend some time. Again, you don't expect to learn overnight. Um, you know, it, it will take time, but, you know, with time, one can learn enough. That's how I would say... Uh, one learns about technology in general or about any other fields of uh, in, in general? Hmm.
0: I, I, I like that, Doc. I'm going to take a slightly different tack um, and kind of wind it right back. I think, Leo, my suggestion would be think about stuff you're actually interested in already. It's incredibly, incredibly difficult, unless you're fascinated by something, to learn deeply about it. Um, I could... You, you, could, you could ask me to learn deeply about crocheting and macrame, and I'm sure I could possibly do it. The chance of me sticking with it enough to develop a meaningful competence in that area is really, really low. Um, so, you know, it has to be something that, that interests you or fascinates you enough to actually make it worth your while trying to learn because you want to become good at it, or almost very good at understanding what's going on, right? Because if you're going to beat the market, which is your aim of buying individual stocks, you have to know something or invest in a way that other people can't or don't want to or just aren't able to, right? So if you, you know, I'm, my, I'm never going to beat Doc. If, if Doc and I were the only people in the market, I would never buy a tech stock because I know that he's going to know more about than I do. And if he's selling, I don't want to be buying. And if I'm selling, yeah, if, I, if he's buying, I don't want to be selling. Um, so, you know, you, have to, you don't have to be the very best in the world at anything, but you need to have enough to know you're likely to be right when you're looking at both the business and the price you're paying and you get that kind of right. And that's not just tech, that's literally across the, across the board. Now, my background is, is consumer products. I worked for Woolies and the whole of consumer companies for the first dozen years of my career. And that was a really good grounding for me in that sort of area. So that's that, that for me is kind of the, my kind of starting point. I learned more about it. I know more about it. I find consumer brands and, and consumer business easier to understand than other businesses. So that, that's, that's what starts the circle of competence. Now, as you say, I was lucky to have a day job that did that. Um, Doc's a computer scientist by background. So again, he's got a day job in that kind of, or had a day job in that kind of stuff, and that helps. Um, so, you know, th- there are there are good starting points, but you've got to be interested in it enough to want to develop a really deep level of knowledge in a particular area. Don't do it just because you feel like you should. Don't do it because everyone else is doing it. Um, do it because it's actually something that, that interests you and turns you on in terms of wanting to know more about the industry, more about the sector, more about the company or the products or whatever else you're doing. Um, Some people love the heck out of biotech, right? I can't bring myself to do it. A, because I don't think there's probably a large amount of uh, successful investing opportunities there, but equally because I'm not that way inclined, I could do it. But the other thing is I have to take stuff away from my other day job, right? Or from everything else I'm doing. So there is some value in narrowing things down to make sure you get really good at a few things. The other thing is then look for, look for ways those things are transferable. So the lessons aren't always that once you know the deep, deep ways in which biotechnology companies uh, develop and test their products, that's interesting in and of itself for biotech, but there might be parallels that you can take to other things. It might be, for example, some sort of business model stuff. So you know, recurring revenue businesses aren't industry specific. They tend to be software companies almost by definition because they are selling memberships or subscriptions to something. But that very idea of a recurring revenue business might help you think about gyms, for example, or magazine subscriptions, as much as they do about software. Now there are different pros and cons to each of those ideas, but taking the idea from the business model and then turning that around to what's actually going on in the marketplace can be a really, really useful thing to think about. Um, the, the pricing power, again, another, another really key one. When, when and where are people likely to spend more money on something, and what does that tell you about the company's likely success? And again, taking that to different industries. So there's a circle of competence at in an industry level. And then there's a circle of competence in, I'll call it business model understanding, which seems a bit highfalutin, but you get the broad idea. The more you know about business as a general idea, the more likely you are to be able to transpose those ideas to a particular investing opportunity set and try and work out whether you think there's some, some value there. And then the last one probably is human psychology. I'm a massive fan, as you know, of human psychology and temperament when it comes to the concept of investing itself, but more broadly, even through our own consumer behavior. We just talked about Qantas today, right? And I will admit, I like Qantas the brand for reasons that are not purely rational all the time. I can convince myself they're rational. I can tell myself that I can justify it somehow. Um, The reality is that even psychologists even tell us that even when we have rational underpinnings for our ideas, quite often those are rational excuses we're making for our emotional preferences. So you think about, you know, I have a very rational view on X, whatever that thing is, can be investing in life or anything else. And we can we can explain it in very super rational terms. Apparently, you know, often times, the reality is that they're not even rational decisions, they're emotional decisions, which we justify using rational criteria rather than the other way around. So being mindful of that, understanding that part of it. Um, I'll, I'll say I've, I've missed Apple uh, for a long time. For A, it was super cheap and I just was not paying attention, which is dumb and Doc gives me grief about that all the time. The other one is the power of, the power of brand, the power of psychology that you know, I, I joke about Apple being a cult and I kind of, I'm only partly joking i partly just super, super impressed about how loyal their customer base is. I should have, I have a background in that I should have known, should have been able to understand very, very early how powerful that was when they pay more for something, when they're buying products that are just, you know, obviously, yes, they're great products, but there's more than just purely rational decision-making going on. That should have given me every opportunity to see that. So that's the other thing is if you have a circle of competence, you're still going to miss it. Uh, but that hopefully has given you some thoughts as to ways of building. And, and is it, the other thing that's good about investing as quickly is it's a, it's a, it's an accumulation activity, right? Um, in sport, you get really good at something. You're good for a few years and then your, your faculties decline. In investing, the great thing is you get to accumulate knowledge, information and experience, which will send you a good stead for decades. So as you build out that, so that, that ability those things accumulate and they, they take a very 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 long time to start to go away maybe when we get a bit older and senile uh, but until then the, you know the better the longer you do it the better you get so I would say start just work on building over time learn from your experiences uh, and that will make you a better investor over time almost by definition as long as you keep an open mind and you're just you know a little bit uh, aware of the mistakes and successes you're having and give it appropriate credit in both directions so you can learn from both. Any more, Doc?
1: That's pretty comprehensive.
0: Beautiful. I reckon that's it, mate. We're done. That's it. We're done. Before we go, don't forget you can and you should subscribe to the Triple M Motley Full Money podcast through iTunes or your favourite Android podcast app. And if you like what we're doing, give us a rating. Go on. Five stars is always polite. And, of course, do please do tell your friends. If you're like some of the commenters and, and questioners who've sent us an email or a Instagram post or a tweet, then they're getting some but Hopefully you are too. And we're hoping that between all of us, we can help more Australians and even more other people around the world do even better with their finance and investing lives as a result. Now, of course, if you do want to get in contact with us, you can hit us up on the socials. So we're on Twitter. Doc is at Anirban Mahanti. I'm at TMF Scott P. And our corporate account is at The Motley Fool AU. You can get us on Facebook, least you, uh, you can get Doc on Facebook, you Get myself and, and The Motley Fool on Facebook. And The Motley Fool Australia is our corporate page or Scott Phillips Money is my professional page on Facebook or on Instagram, you can go to at The Motley Fool AU or at TMF Scott P. And if you must, if you want to, you can still email us. It's a bit old school these days, but info at fool.com.au and that will get your question via our wonderful member services team straight to Doc and I so we can help answer it on this particular podcast. That's it for this week's Motley Fool Money. We'll be back next week, maybe on Tuesday with some money hacks, with another dose of Foolish Insight. Thanks for listening. Fool on. Fool on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under Financial Services License 400691.